0: This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines.
1: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about climate change. And we're talking about it with someone who's been sounding the alarm for a long time. It's been more than 30 years since Bill McKibben wrote The End of Nature, an essential text in the fight against climate change. And the possibilities of avoiding the worst impacts of climate change were very different back then. But so was the audience for work like McKibben's. It's easy to forget that climate change was once a niche category of news, and that only in the last couple decades has it become central to the general population's understanding of modern life. That's because of mainstream publications tracking the emergent impacts, but also by the arrival of specialized outlets such as Grist, which is where the interviewer here, Shannon Osaka, currently works covering climate policy and solutions. In this conversation with McKibben, which was recorded during the 2022 Crosscut Festival in early May, the author presents an overview of the history of climate change and climate denial, and the challenges presented by both. And he also looks at a future where something else, a sense of hopelessness, may be presenting yet another challenge to overcome. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com team the Arbor Group. I hope you find this conversation helpful. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show.
2: It's a real honor to be here. Bill McKibben, thank you for joining me today.
0: Well, what an honor for me to get to talk with you and to say thanks for all the good work you've done at Grist and Wired and every place else. You know, one of the pleasures for me of the moment, and one has to seek out what pleasures one can at the moment, uh, is that there is just an extraordinary group of young climate journalists, um, hard at work all over the country which you exemplify when i was first doing this work back in the 80s and 90s it was very lonely Um, there were um, there was if there was a major story in some english-speaking publication there was about climate change there was about a 70 percent chance i wrote it which was a terrible on many counts for me for readers for everybody else um it was that feeling of having a nightmare, but you can't, you're in a nightmare, but you can't get anyone around you to acknowledge the large monster that's bearing down. So now I'm glad that my angst is at least more widely distributed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Shared with a larger group of people. That's true. Um, The first question I want to ask you is actually kind of going back to that point 30, 33 years ago when you were first reporting on this. So Your book, The End of Nature, which really inspired me, generally considered to be the first book written on climate change for a general audience. And at the time you wrote this really interesting thesis, which was that because human released carbon dioxide had fundamentally transformed the entire planet, every corner of the atmosphere, every corner of the world, this idea that nature as a world apart from man had gone extinct. And so I'm just curious, how have your thoughts changed since then? Do you still believe that climate change has fundamentally ended nature? So
0: in a sense, my thoughts have gotten more complicated and richer over time. Um, I, I went back and read The End of Nature for the first time in a long time this year because Penguin published it, chose it to be uh, on their list of modern classics and published it as uh, which is very nice, because I think now that means it will be in print, however long things are in print. Um, but but um, So I read it again. Um, so at that time, we didn't know much. We, we, we knew all that there was to know about the science of climate change, but we couldn't yet point to the impacts of it. It was all in the future, what was going to happen sort of abstract so my main emotion when i was writing and i think the emotion that runs through that book is kind of sadness uh and there's a kind of elegiac quality to it uh at the passing of an idea the idea you correctly described that there are places where human beings aren't that there are you know that that that, that there's something bigger than us out there in the natural world because at the moment, the natural world reflects us in all that it's doing. It was 122 degrees in Pakistan last night. Well, that's us, you know. Um, now that we can see those effects, like what's happening in Pakistan, there's obviously another dimension that is added in, a, a sort of fear uh, that uh, of all that's happening and all that will happen now that we can attach it to individual people especially the most vulnerable people on the planet. And truthfully, there's also a fair amount of anger in my uh, my, uh, heart now about all this, because, you know, as as it turns out, great investigative reporting that's amply demonstrated, the fossil fuel industry knew all about this back when I was writing about it. Uh, They were investigating it too and figuring it out, and they understood it, and they took action to you know, figure out which parts of the Arctic they wanted to lease once they'd melted it, but they didn't tell the rest of us. They just lied about it. So now there's that combination of um, sadness and fear and anger. Um, And that makes it all the more important for me that I can still get outside um, most days and into the woods. And it's not the wilderness that, you know, uh, Thoreau might've imagined, Um, but, in relative terms, it remains uh, uh, a place where we can at least imagine something other than ourselves. And I will add this, in the 33 years since I wrote that book, Nature has, the natural world has had one other new role. It's the place you go where there is no social media. Um, where you can, only a place where you can escape from the you know endless tyranny of Twitter and insta and everything else?
2: I want to follow up on that a little bit because one of the things that you wrestled with in that book is you know if nature is extinct, if this sort of purest idea of nature is gone, then how and why do we fight for its remnants? I mean we're at this place we've warmed the earth about one point two degrees Celsius. How do we think about, inspiring sort of the next generation of environmental activists as we shift ever farther away from that natural temperature, that sort of pre-industrial natural world?
0: Well, it's a really good question. And one of the things that I've had to come to grips with in the course of my life and thinking is um, everything is relative. Um, So look, we're past the point where we can stop global warming. I have lost that fight early on, you know. Um, That doesn't mean that we can't stop it short of what it would otherwise be, i.e. all the work that millions of people are doing around the world now is to make sure the planet warms 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius instead of 3 or 4 degrees Celsius not because it's going to be great <laughs> two degrees if one degree melted the arctic we were really fools to find out what two degrees does but that's kind of where we are now we're having to do everything to try and get to 1.5 or 2. um but it's incredibly better you know it, it it's a miserable outcome but not perhaps an uh, unsurvivable one I, at this point i think it's pretty clear that if we let the planet warm three or four degrees celsius we're not going to have civilizations like the ones we're used to the stress and flux and stuff just probably too much um, by the same token uh the world around us is relative too you know um mm-hmm. that is there is no pure nature i guess Um, I think my argument holds, I think that's why 10 years later, scientists started talking about the Anthropocene, you know, but in a certain way, it's made the places that are wilder than other places, all the more valuable, stick out all the more that the the relative wild uh, is, is should be protected uh, 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 as best we possibly can, because for its instrumental value, you know, it, because it sequesters carbon, because it allows plants and animals to escape to the north, so on. But also because uh, we need places to be out in the natural world and better, better, you know, a um, an imperfect natural world than none at all.
2: Absolutely. And I, I feel like COVID was sort of a, a wake-up call for a lot of people of appreciating these pockets of more wilderness and yep. more nature.
0: I think that's so true. I, you know, I, I, I spend I live lived my whole life out in the woods and it's really been a pleasure over the last couple of years to watch in the winter people, you know, you, you can't buy a pair of cross country skis in Vermont. Um, everybody <laughs> yeah. wants to be out doing something.
2: You talked about sort of, you know, the importance of these relatively better you know, situations that we'll be in, you know, 1.5 is better than two degrees, which is infinitely better than three degrees or four degrees. And we're in this place where, I mean, I've talked, I spoke to a high school class last week and I've talked to some climate scientists who say that when they're talking to young people, they feel like they're they're interacting a lot more with people who are saying, who are worried that, you know, after 2030, the world is going to end, they're not gonna be able to have children. These scientists are saying, I almost interact more with these people than I do with climate deniers. How do we talk to young people specifically about how bad things are getting while also pointing out how much bad we can still avert? I mean, how do we walk this sort of narrow line?
0: Yes, this is a very good question, one that I've been trying to answer a little bit. I just published last week my first book for children, Uh, in this case, quite small children. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's a picture book. I didn't do the pictures because I can barely doodle, but I wrote the words. And the, the strategy I chose for that. I mean, these are very young kids, so obviously it would be wrong to scare them in any way, you know, and worry them or whatever. But people are worried and they know that there's trouble um, and things. So the point I was trying to make was with this book was that the, the title is We Are Better Together and I'm and mm-hmm. I, 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 trying to Help help people know that there are people working to make big changes and that they can play a part in that work. Um, The scariest thing about climate change is our sense of lack of agency around it. It is so big and each of us is so small that the idea that we might actually make a difference seems far-fetched and indeed, at this point, I'm afraid it really is far-fetched if we're thinking of ourselves as individuals, which we've been trained to do since at least the Reagan years in this country. And that's, what, that's what we're supposed to be. Um, as Margaret Thatcher memorably said, there is no society. There are only individual men and women. Um, the, um, the chance that we can solve things individually is vanishingly small. I'm proud that I have solar panels all over the roof and that they connect to an electric car, but I don't try to fool myself that that's what, how we're gonna do this. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to matter. So that's why we started 350.org and why people started the Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and why we're organizing Third Act and you know on and on and on. And, and young people in particular, need to kind of feel and know this and they definitely can. I mean some of the best organizers in the world now are junior high and high school students.
2: People ask me since becoming a climate journalist, you know, do you get depressed all the time? You know, isn't this isn't this sort of a terrible job? And I think, you know, I do get depressed sometimes, but at the same time, when you spend all day talking, and I work mostly on solutions and policies, when you spend all day talking to people who are very engaged on trying to pass policy and get these climate solutions through, it's hard to be depressed all the time when those yes. are the people you're interacting with.
0: The, the, dep- the only depressing part for me is realizing that there are a, lar- a fairly large number of extremely important and powerful people who are not working to help, who are working to hinder progress here. This would be an extremely difficult task to pull off, even if everybody was working with good faith in the same direction. And the fact that we also have to overcome people whose only interest is vested interest um, is the only part that gets me down. And I've been glad of not, I mean, your job in the last year, I'm sure it's been very tough in part because you're getting to watch this drama and probably one of the latter chapters of it play out. I mean, watching Joe Manchin hold up the climate bill month after month after month because his paymasters at the fossil fuel industry have told him to is is depressing. (laughs) There's no way around that. So that's why we try and organize so we can have some countervailing power to that money and greed.
2: We talked about sort of the very young side of organizing, and I want to ask you about the older side of organizing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, my, I actually first found out about Third Act through my 67-year-old father, so the message is getting out, but yeah, I, I just yeah. want <laughs> to ask you about the organization and what's behind the focus on baby boomers? I mean, what can they add to the climate conversation and to sort of the political energy behind the movement that hasn't been there before?
0: So first of all, it's directly out of this sort of experience of working with young people that this came, because that's mostly what I've done in my life. Believe it or not, I was once one myself back when I was writing the end of nature, I was in my twenties. I think I was 27 or 28 when it came out, when I started 350, I was in my 40s, but I did it with seven college students. You know, a ton of that work was on divestment. And so I worked with kids on every college campus in the country, tons of whom went on to start the Sunrise Movement. I've gotten to know and love all the really young organizers, Greta, that who everybody knows, and everybody should, because Greta Thunberg is a great brilliant organizer and a good human being. But there's 10,000 Greta's around the planet. I got worried at some point that we were um, taking the most difficult problem in human history and assigning it to 17-year-olds. Um, you know, please, in between, you know, pre-calc and field hockey practice, would you mind also saving the world while you're doing it? And And it, that's ignoble, but it's also unlikely to be successful, it seems to me, because They bring some of the ingredients, extraordinary passion, curiosity, uh, you know, uh, 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 openness to new ideas, but they don't have some of the things they need, which are political and economic power. So, you know, enter the 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 over 60 crowd like me. Um, You know, um, we have we vote like crazy. There's 70 million of us, so a bigger population than France, but we vote in such large numbers that really there might as well be 100 million of us when it comes to politics. And we ended up with all the money. I mean, fairly or not, people over the age of 60 have 70% of the country's financial assets. So if you want to lean on politicians, you need voters. And if you want to lean on bankers, you need. People with money in their vaults, and and I want to lean on both those guys. So it, it's a good group to try and organize, especially because for this group of boomers and the silent generation above them, their first act, they have, we have good generational DNA. You know, our first act back in the '60s or '70s was a time of really profound social, cultural, political transformation. It, you know, women's movement, civil rights movement, anti-war movement, but in the environment, this was the first Earth Day in 1970, which was not some celebration of the planet. It was a protest. There were 20 million people in the streets, 10% of the then population, and a huge number of those 20 million are still alive and still wanting to do stuff, and so it's been great fun to be corralling them and and <laughs> trying to do this cross-generational work. We've been doing a lot of work on banks. And part of the reason is that that's what young people were working on. In October, uh, Fridays for the Future Coalition in the US asked us to come support them as they were doing these protests outside banks. We said, sure. And I was in Boston that day. And so there was a big crowd of young people marching and at the back, uh, marching more slowly, a big crowd of us older people. And someone had a big banner that said, um, Fossils against fossil fuels. So that was our rallying cry. And, uh, you know, uh, on we go.
1: We'll be back with more after this message.
0: Dreaming of a long awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com.
2: So we're at a place now where we've seen this huge outpouring of support. We've seen, um, we're at a moment where there's more support for climate policy than ever before. We've seen the Sunrise Movement, we've seen Greta Thunberg, we've seen Fridays for the Future. And yet here in the US, we have yet to see substantial legislation on climate change. We have yet to see sort of action that rises to the level that we need. What do you attribute that to? Do you think of it as fossil fuel money? I mean, are you hopeful that we will see the government action that we need in the future?
0: So we're in an interesting moment to answer this. There's no longer what there was for many years, which was a technical or financial obstacle, i.e. 10 years ago, solar power and wind power were still expensive. Um, they're not anymore. This is the cheapest power in the world. scientists and engineers have really done their job. So now all we're left with to explain the delay is inertia, which is always a problem in human affairs, but not a unovercomable one. What is perhaps unovercomable in the time we have is the extraordinary power of vested interest. Now, I haven't given up, and we're definitely getting closer. Like 2009 was the last time that Congress even tried to do climate legislation, and it didn't even come close. I mean, it wouldn't have had 30 votes in the Senate. We're one vote away from passing. Extraordinary. We've got 49. I don't know. We're, for the moment, assuming that Kristen Sinema is in a rational mood for the day and, you know, whatever, but we've got 49 Democrats ready to go with ambitious climate action. Mm -hmm. Um, um, That's painfully close, but not, you know, not quite enough. Um, and, and so we try to keep building power and building things bigger. Uh, I, I have no doubt the movement will keep growing. What worries me of course, is that unlike our other political challenges, this is a time test. Uh, if we don't get it right soon, we never get it right. Once the Arctic's melted, it's not like someone has a plan to freeze it back up again. And that's why along with political action, I think it's super important that people work hard to pull on the other big lever, the other lever big enough to matter. One of those is marked politics. We've got it, that one pulled almost all the way to the floor. Joe Manchin's struggling to keep it from you know, working. Um, the other one's marked money. And we've made real progress here. This divestment campaign that Naomi Klein and I sort of sort helped dream up uh, is become the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. We're at $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested. It's weakened these giant companies considerably in both reputation and in ability to access capital. And now we're going hard against the banks that remain their lifeline. Um, that's a lot of the work we're doing at Third Act and elsewhere. Um, trying to trying to get people and companies to pressure these banks to stop funding the fossil fuel industry. You know, the big four American banks, Chase, Citi, Wells, B of A, they've they've lent the fossil fuel industry more than a trillion dollars since the Paris Accords were signed. They didn't need Donald Trump to sabotage the thing. They were happy to do it themselves. So we have to get one or both of these two systems, politics or economics, out of kind of suicide mode and into survival mode, you know?
2: I've been a climate reporter for just two years and it's hard imagining have some of the people in journalism and in policy who have watched sort of, you know, getting closer every time, but sort of the same process play out in so many different administrations. So it takes a lot of, um, focus and determination to see it through.
0: Things do change. And right now, one thing that is changing, that's a real wild card and unclear how it's going to break is Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine clearly a war that emphasizes the other one of the other gross things about fossil fuel, which is that it's in, almost invariably the friend of despots. The fact that it's concentrated in a few places on the planet means that if you happen to control one of those places, you get a lot of unearned power. Hence Putin, hence the King of Saudi Arabia. Hence, in our country, the Koch brothers, our biggest oil and gas barons, who used their winnings to buy a political party and, and to form our democracy. Um, you know, the world past that, the world that runs on sun and wind isn't some utopia, but everybody's got some sun and some wind. So there's a more small democratic world on the other side, which is why the exons of the world fight so hard to keep us from getting there. But, you know, so their, their reaction to Ukraine is, let's go pump more oil and, you know, that'll be how we get around Putin. That strikes me as insane. Oil is a global market, you know, Putin's receipts have gone up, not down this year as the price of oil has gone up. But if we seize the moment instead to make this the the chance to all out wartime effort, uh, 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 make the switch to renewable energy, it's probably the last really great opportunity like that we're going to get in a physically relevant timeframe. So that's what I've been working hard on these last weeks and heat pumps for your project and things. And I, I don't know whether we'll, you know, whether we'll get them through or not, but I'm excited that uh, people are understanding the opportunity anyway.
2: I remember learning and reading in college about sort of the way that different energy sources can structure political structures, right? I mean the way that you know you could have renewables which as you're saying, are not perfect, but they're more distributed. They're sort of almost a more democratic um, aspect to having power from renewables versus having this fuel that you know you have to put through pipelines and so has very specific tracks. and it's interesting just seeing people realize that yep. more globally.
0: Vladimir Putin would have a hard time, you know, embargoing the sun um, you know, turning <laughs> off the wind, but he can do that with the gas tap at least for the moment. so, uh, and and one of the which it's, it's important we send weapons to help ukraine defend itself but it's even more important i think that we send the technology in large numbers to europe to help free it from having to having to fear putin quite so much and we better do it before october because even on a globally warmed world it's going to start getting cold again in october you know
2: yeah for for viewers viewers who don't know um, Bill's Bill's suggestion for heat pumps for for peace and freedom I think it was which was in your substack was about you know sending basically systems that can electrify buildings such that you can get heat from electricity as opposed to to natural gas or oil or
0: and one beauty of it is uh, yes heat pumps are great they're the kind of electric replacement for the furnace in your basement and they work great and they they save huge amounts of energy. And and if Biden wanted to do this in this context, he could do it invoking the Defense Production Act, which doesn't require Joe Manchin or anybody else to sign off on it. You know, um, he used it as Trump did to spur the production of vaccines. Um, this is as uh, you know, this is the same sort of level of emergency.
2: It looks like we're out of time. It has been so great talking to you today, Bill. I really appreciate you joining us at the Crosscut Festival this year.
0: The pleasure has been all mine. Thank you so much for your good work you're doing and people should really make sure to be reading Grist to see it um, um, and, and keep it up. Thank you very much.
1: And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Bill and Shannon for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com slash events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS-9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.